what evil lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> the shadow knows. And it's not even Halloween yet. Nope. But we're back. That's why. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, where the power is coming back, I hear. Also in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also uh, stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the Internet. It's been a while. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burden Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. And yeah, hey, we're back. Can you hear the crowd celebrating already, <laughs> Desi Doyen? Uh, no, co- actually, I can't. You can't hear them now? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, listen closer. I'm sure they're delighted. Uh, anyway, I would love to say it's great to be back, but, well, you know... Uh, anyway, there have been just a few things that have been happening oh, in the few. news, as it turns out. We picked a hell of a week to leave, of course. I'm not sure there's any other week that would have been any better, to to be frank. But, uh, yeah, a few things happened while we stood down for a week. And, by the way, my huge thanks to Nicole Sandler for picking up a few days for us. Uh, let's see. Among those things, Texas passed a sweeping anti-voting bill thanks to Democrats in the state who came back to Texas after previously courageously fleeing the state to prevent Republicans from having a quorum in the state legislature to pass this voter suppression bill. Oh, well, today Republican Governor Greg Abbott signed that bill, which will make it much harder to vote, particularly for minorities in a state that was already one of the most difficult to cast a vote in. So there's that. Oh, yeah. Also, Joe Biden ended our 20 year war in Afghanistan. That happened. A Cat 4 hurricane named Ida slammed New Orleans on the same day as uh, Hurricane Katrina did so 16 years earlier, knocking out all of the city's power and wreaking havoc from Louisiana to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania and beyond, causing massive flooding and more than 50 deaths along the way. 
Parts of southeastern Louisiana could still be weeks without power after Ida at this point. However, the power in New Orleans, as I mentioned, is supposed to be fully back on by Wednesday. So there is that in yet another reminder of our worsening climate emergency. Even amidst that, however, West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin claimed that he was prepared to kill Joe Biden's entire Build Back Better agenda, along with, if he actually did, any slim chance the Democrats might have of holding on to the majorities, to their current majorities in either chamber of Congress next year along with it. Keep up the good work, Joe Manchin. The U.S. Supreme Court effectively overturned Roe v. Wade's constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion in Texas without as much as even a full hearing or a full opinion via the high court's so-called shadow docket. We will discuss that in much detail with my guest shortly. My uh, friend, the great actor and activist Ed Asner died. Maybe we'll discuss that a bit more as the week goes on. But with all of that mostly terrible news over the past week, there was at least a bit of good news out here in California on a story that I've been trying to raise the alarm about for the past month or so now in the middle of our ongoing, ridiculous gubernatorial recall election. And if you live in California, your last day to postmark or return your vote by uh, your vote by mail ballot is next Tuesday, September 14. And I hope you will do so ASAP at this point. So in any event, what's the good news on that score? Well, as I took time off from my time off to uh, blog about at bradblog.com late last week, eight of the nation's top cybersecurity and voting systems experts warned in a letter sent to California's Secretary of State on Thursday night that, quote, emergency action is warranted, unquote. That in response to the recent leak of key vote voting system software used in nearly 60 percent of California's jurisdictions right in the middle of this gubernatorial recall election. And the call from these uh, scientists, frankly, comes not a moment too soon, as I have been trying like hell on this show and behind the scenes to get both national media and the California Secretary of State's office to connect the dots between this stolen software that was released into the wilds of the Internet, stolen from Colorado, and the uh, ongoing, the connect the dots to that, and the ongoing right now California recall. Finally, we get some help uh, in that fight from these experts late last week. The bluntly and urgently worded three-page letter to California Secretary of State Dr. Shirley Weber calls for a specific type of public post-election audit as the, quote, one critical action that should be announced immediately in response to the software that was stolen from the Mesa County, Colorado uh, uh, County Clerk's Office and also from Antrim County, Michigan, we learned. One of the copies, there was three hard drives that were copied and released into the wilds, two of them from Mesa County, Colorado, one from Antrim County. Michigan. The uh, software in question is the Dominion Voting's uh, uh, Dominion Voting's Election Management System. That's called EMS. It was released over the Internet for broad download by anyone during this so-called cyber symposium that was run by the 
Trump-supporting conspiracy theorist and pillow empresario Mike Lindell over almost a month ago now. The EMS software used in both Colorado and Michigan and many other states, including California, is used to manage every aspect of elections from ballot creation to tabulation. 40 of California's 58 counties, according to AP's coverage of the experts letter on the uh, on the same night that it was released, uh, 40 of these counties here in this state use a version of Dominion EMS that, according to the experts, while not identical, is virtually the same with only, quote, relatively minor differences. The release materially elevates threats to the trustworthiness of the ongoing California recall election and to public trust in the election. The experts inform Weber in their letter as they urge her to, in advance of the election, mandate a robust statewide post-election audit in each county in the state. The uh, computer scientists explain that, quote, a statewide risk-limiting audit, or RLA, of trustworthy paper ballots can substantially mitigate these threats as posed by this recent breach. They define a trustworthy paper ballot as a hand-marked paper ballot with a secure chain of custody. They advise the Secretary of State to mandate RLAs in order to both ensure accuracy of computer-tallied results of those ballots and to offer confidence to the public in the results, whatever they are, no matter the outcome of the September 14th GOP recall that targets Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. The letter is signed by a number of esteemed folks, many of whom have been guests on this show over the years and even in recent months. Uh, UC Berkeley's Philip Stark, Georgia Tech's Rich DeMillo, the legendary cybersecurity and voting system uh, white hat hacker Harry Hursty, Livermore National Labs cyber expert and longtime California Secretary of State voting system advisor David Jefferson, University of South Carolina's Duncan Buell, amongst others. Uh, Stark, by the way, of UC Berkeley, he's the inventor of the well-regarded risk-limiting audit protocol that's being recommended by the experts here. As of August 2021, they write, thousands of unknown people can study the code and find weaknesses to plan attacks on elections. The attacks, they say, can be deployed by non-technical accomplices, including voters, building maintenance personnel, and election workers. Unfortunately, they say even extensive pre-election testing of the voting equipment may not deter or detect such attacks. And that's why they're calling for the audits, because there is no way to know if the computers tallied the results correctly unless they are at least some of the ballots counted by human beings, especially given the release of this software. They write, in raising our concerns about the Dominion software release, we are not accusing Dominion of wrongdoing, nor do we have evidence that anyone currently plans to attack the recall election. However, they say it's clear to recognize that the release of the Dominion software into the wild has increased the risk to the security of California elections to the point that emergency action is warranted, unquote. That is in the words not of Brad Friedman, but of actual voting system and cybersecurity experts. Emergency action is warranted. Frankly, just as I have been shouting from the rooftops. 
They go on to draw a distinction between the actions that they are urging from the Secretary of State and the, uh, let's say, less than scrupulous so-called audits that have been uh, carried out recently without any public oversight in places like Maricopa County, Arizona, by inexperienced private entities who have a partisan agenda. Uh, these folks calling for this uh, RLA do not have a partisan agenda. As a matter of fact, the reason they're saying it needs to be called for now is because it needs to be done before the results come in and we know which direction this election goes. They don't care which direction it goes. They want the public to be able to know that the results were counted accurately. And that's how you do it, at least in this case, with this short notice, with a risk-limiting audit. Yeah, you have to announce it before the results come out so that you can avoid any appearance of partisanship at Correct. all or it being based on this kind of audit being yeah. based on the results. Yes, yeah. and they should do it no matter who wins, no matter who loses. Right. The uh, letter's authors stress the importance of committing to such a post-election verification before Election Day. They say, otherwise it may appear to be a partisan decision. There yeah. may be calls for other kinds of audits that are neither scientifically grounded nor probative and that would likely undermine public confidence in the election. I hope to report more on this in the days ahead, along with everything everything else that I just rambled through in, in about 30 seconds at the top <laughs> of the show. Uh, as we try to get caught up with so much that has gone on. But I wanted to let you know that the scientists have now jumped into the argument that I've been making on this show to you for the last month or so, as the media had reported uh, sort of somewhat on the theft and the leak of the software and warned that it might cause problems in about 30 states which use that software. But until now, none of those reports had connected the dots back to the California recall that is going on right now, and what, if anything, could be done about it. That said, the response to date from the California Secretary of State's office has been less than robust. Uh, Jenna Dressner, a spokesperson for the uh, Secretary's office, is quoted in the AP article on the letter uh, headlined, uh, Experts Call for Rigorous Audit to Protect California Recall. Uh, she told AP that counties in California using Dominion employ a different version of the EMS, than that which was stolen uh, and, and released onto the Internet. Uh, she, she says that the, the, this different version somehow meets various state-specific requirements, and she uh, said that numerous security measures in place were would protect against uh, voting systems uh, manipulation across the state. But the experts who wrote the letter to the secretary of state pretty much countered all of those comments, noting that the differences between the EMS software that was released uh, versus that used in California is marginal at best, and that security measures currently in place in California will not protect protect against a determined bad guy using the uh, uh, released software for practice. I don't know. Maybe listen to the experts. Why would they do that? Uh, anyway, as those experts uh, note, even if nobody succeeds in manipulating the results, the fact that they could, uh, that can only be disproven with a proper post-election risk-limiting audit that should be called for now as opposed to after Election Day. There's no way to know, you know, depending on what the results are, either side could claim, oh, this was manipulated in some way. Well, if that's the case, there's one, only one thing to do about it. Count the ballots by hand. 
Uh, in any event, as I said, more in the days ahead, but I wanted to get you somewhat caught up on that since we uh, were previously the only outlet in the nation covering it and letting you know about these still very serious concerns here in California that affect both handmarked paper ballots cast by mail uh, or at the polls and affect the touchscreen systems that many of the state's largest jurisdictions require voters to use on Election Day at the polls. So if you're in California and you haven't voted yet uh, with a vote by mail ballot that all registered voters were sent, now's a great time to do it. And I strongly recommend that you drop it off uh, in either a drop box or at a voting center in person. Okay, uh, for now, from the uh, attempt to avert one huge disaster in the weeks ahead to a uh, to several disasters, frankly, already underway, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court and their shadow docket. What is the shadow docket, you say? Well, the great Mark Joseph Stern will be here to talk about it today. And frankly, none of it is good news, I'm afraid. That'll teach us to come back from vacation. The evils of the newly emboldened Supreme Court and their shadow docket is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the broadcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Who knows? What evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. Oh, man. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The shadow docket. It's a phrase that most mere uh, non-attorney mortals like myself may not have even heard of uh, before, at least before the past week, if they even heard about it then, especially with everything else going on over this past week. But there are a number of folks, for example, my guest joining me momentarily, who have been trying to raise alarms about the seemingly increasing use of the so-called shadow docket at the U.S. Supreme Court. Over the past week or two, in quick succession, there have been at least three disturbing rulings or decisions or opinions. I'm not even sure how to reference these things properly coming out of the court's shadow docket. The name essentially given to the usually very brief decisions made by the high court when they are not actually in session between terms, as they are right now, with the new term of the Republicans stolen and packed six to three Supreme Court majority, not in official session again until the first Monday in October, as per longstanding federal law. Of course, the same federal law mandates each year's annual term end on the Sunday before the first Monday in October. So the court could be in session all year round, but modern Supreme Courts have decided to take a luxurious three-month vacation over the summer when, uh, even though laws and challenges 
to to them don't stop happening. They just, you know, want to have some time, some downtime. The court, instead of hearing cases publicly and deliberating, deliberating at length before releasing their opinion, sort of released these short opinions in the middle of the night without ever even hearing the cases in question, perhaps to be reviewed again down the road, or perhaps not. That happened, as I said, at least three times over the past week or two since we took our own much shorter summer break. With no hearing, no public debate, no lengthy deliberation about uh, among the court's nine justices, three of whom were jammed onto the bench by Donald Trump, three troubling rulings were issued by the court in just the past 10 days or so. One, if I understand it, not only upholds Donald Trump's remain in Mexico policy for immigrants coming up from Central America while their asylum claims are being processed, it actually orders the Biden administration to hold foreign policy talks with Mexico in order to somehow accomplish this mandate, something that the court has traditionally stayed away from, as initially issued in an order by a single Trump-appointed federal judge, but now supported by a majority on the high court via the shadow docket. Yes, from the shadows of the shadow docket. The second shadow docket decision also stepped heavily uh, into territory that is traditionally seen as the domain of the executive branch by blocking the Biden administration's extended moratorium on evictions around the country in the wake of the resurgence of the coronavirus. A largely debate-free decision by the court that will result in potentially millions of Americans losing their homes in coming days in the middle of a deadly pandemic, even before the court re reconvenes in October. And the third shadow docket ruling in recent days, which I suspect most of our listeners have heard of by now, and which may be the most egregious decision to have been made in the shadows, the court's decision to allow Texas's new ban on all abortions after six weeks, something that would seem to clearly violate the constitutional right to an abortion as long ago established by Roe v. Wade in 1973, but theoretically sidestepped here by Texas with the state Republicans' novel and complicated enforcement provision that uh, Texas believes will allow them to avoid any violation of Roe by allowing citizens, as opposed to the state itself, from enforcing the full ban on abortion after six weeks before many women even know they are pregnant. And even in the case of rape and incest, that will now effectively force women to carry the baby of their rapists to term, whether they wish to or not. And all of these, of course, are rather weighty and complicated constitutional questions. But with a far-right 6-3 majority now on the court, it's hardly unimaginable to think that a majority of justices on this corrupted court would have come to the same ultimate findings that they did in these three cases anyway, even after a full, normal public hearing a debate and deliberation on these cases. But there were no such hearings, no such public debate and discourse. And the court's ruling here, with really unimaginable consequences in several cases, not to mention hypocritical ones as well, well, they were simply declared literally in the dark of night in what has come to be known as the court's shadow docket, which my guest, our good friend Mark Joseph Stern, will join us to discuss after this quick break, I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening 
to the Bradcast. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. We are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com running with the shadows of the night. Over the past two weeks, without hearings or oral arguments on or, or public debate, as the U.S. Supreme Court has been on its long summer break, they found... Time to issue rulings with huge consequences, one that prevents President Biden from setting immigration policy by forcing him to continue the so-called remain in Mexico policy instituted for those from Central America seeking asylum in the U.S., another which blocks the president from declaring a moratorium on evictions here in the U.S., and another which effectively overturns the long-standing constitutional precedent of Roe v. Wade's protections for the right of women to have an abortion in the now apparently far, far right state of Texas. All of this is done without a hearing in the nation's highest court. It's made possible by three far right justices rammed onto the court by Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress after they did away with the filibuster on lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land. They weren't afraid to do that, Joe Manchin. So what's your problem? Anyway, longtime court reporter and Supreme Court expert at Slate.com, Mark Joseph Stern, has been trying to raise attention to the dangers of the Supreme Court's out-of-control so-called shadow docket for some time. And I'm happy to say he joins us now to help us somehow unpack these three cases and perhaps as importantly the dangers and seemingly increased use of the shadow dockets to push stuff through the high court without much, if any, public oversight at all. Oh, Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back. And we usually don't speak with you this time of year because the court is out, but for some reason they pulled us back in early this year, I guess, Mark. Hello, hello. The court never goes out of session these days. With the shadow dockets, it means that basically we all have to be on high alert 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because at any time the Supreme Court could issue a monumental decision overturning decades of precedent, and we all just have to live with it. You know, I I really hope my summary there of a lot of of information uh, was at least both close to accurate and underscores really the troubling nature of what we have seen from the high court over the past two weeks alone, they have been on their long summer vacation. But, you know, let's run briefly through these three shadow docket rulings, why they're so unusual and or outrageous, as uh, I believe you see them. And, and then we could turn to a discussion of the shadow docket itself, why it's a concern and what, if anything, can or, or should actually be done about it. Uh, Yeah, it was literally in the middle of the night, as I recall, Mark, before we left on our own week-long vacation. The court essentially mandated that the Biden administration restore an immigration policy from the Trump administration that they had put in place to keep asylum-seeking immigrants waiting in Mexico. This uh, so-called remain in Mexico policy that Biden ended under his what we thought was his authority as president. Uh, I thought the Supreme Court stayed out of immigration and foreign policy issues since this also involves, you know, the Mexican government. 
and, and left that sort of stuff to the executive branch and, and to Congress when appropriate. Yeah, and you might have also thought that the Supreme Court uh, does not let lower court judges issue sweeping injunctions blocking the president's immigration policies. Uh, as you recall, under Trump, the Supreme Court's conservatives leapt in time and again to swat down uh, judges who had tried to halt uh, the former president's immigration rules. But all of that is out the window now that Joe Biden is in the White House. And instead, we have a, a new principle here that apparently the president no longer runs foreign policy. That task has been transferred to a single Trump-appointed judge in Texas. This judge issued a decision that is really kind of shockingly lawless, um, that prevents the Biden administration from ending Trump's remain in Mexico policy uh, and actually forces the Biden administration to restore it. Now, what is this policy? It is essentially a rule that asylum seekers at the southern border cannot wait in the United States uh, while they have a hearing in the coming months. Uh, they have to linger in Mexico in these horrible tent cities that are filled with violent crime, including kidnappings, rapes, and murders. They're stuck on the southern side of the border. This is an inhumane practice. The Ninth Circuit found that it was illegal under Trump. Uh, the Biden administration wanted to officially repeal it, and it tried to do so, and yet a single Trump judge in Texas said, no, you don't get to do this. You have to restore it because the law requires it in my view, uh, and actually gave the Biden administration a single week to engage in sensitive diplomatic negotiations mm -hmm. with the government of Mexico right. to force the Mexican government to continue taking thousands of migrants on their side of the border, um, which is something that the Mexican government does not actually want to do and may not be able to do. Because this policy for it to be carried out actually has to be in cooperation with the Mexican government. And so the court is saying the Biden administration must enter talks with a foreign government. I, I, you know, I was hoping there was something here that I'm just not understanding, because when I saw this come down, I thought, well, we just spent the past four years with the Supreme Court saying that anything Trump wanted to do on immigration, though, that was the purview of the president. He could do he could uh, enact the policies as he wished. Is there something, anything here that is different that would bar this president from uh, making such policies? other than he's a Democrat? <laughs> That's pretty much it. He's got a D next to his name, so he doesn't get to make these policies. Uh, I, I mean, the hypocrisy here is stunning, right? The yeah. Supreme Court uh, said that the president gets to make immigration law over and over again under Trump. Remember the travel ban case? Yeah. Remember the wealth test case? Right. Remember all of these awful cases where the Supreme Court said Trump can do whatever he wants. Uh, and then Biden comes in and the Supreme Court says Biden can't do anything that he wants. <laughs> and in fact, because, you know, uh, as you said in the outset, the Supreme Court allowed this crazy Trump judge <laughs> to, right. to 
move forward on this path to sort of like single judicial, single judge supremacy, uh, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we're just going to let this guy take over foreign policy. It's not our job to step in at this point. The Biden administration didn't work hard enough to repeal the Remain in Mexico rule. So the Trump judge gets to gets to run the show from here on out. And in fact, the Trump judge gets to oversee these diplomatic negotiations with Mexico and ensure that they are being held in, quote, good faith. And if they are not, then this Trump judge has awarded himself the power to sanction the government officials who are responsible for begging the Mexican government to keep these migrants in their in their jurisdiction. And because as outrageous as that is, because this was done via the shadow docket, is there any explanation as to why the high the highest court in the land here feels that this is necessary? Did they did they detail? Did they explain any of this or or essentially did they say, no, we we agree with the lower courts, uh, do what he said. So the answer is basically no. The Supreme Court gave three sentences of analysis, an incredibly cryptic order that suggested that the Biden administration did not provide good enough reasons to wind down the Remain in Mexico policy. Um, This was something that the Supreme Court did say about Trump's attempt to wind down DACA, uh, protection for dreamers, but the two policies could not be more different, uh, starting with the fact that protecting dreamers does not involve negotiations with the Mexican government or any other foreign government. Um, Instead, the, the justices just left us to basically grasp at straws, guessing what could possibly be the reason that that Biden screwed up and not giving Biden uh, a clear path forward, a roadmap to do this legally the way that the court did with DACA for Trump. Then came the ruling on the Biden administration's extension of the eviction moratorium uh, during the pandemic, which may be at least a, a slightly closer case, I guess, in that the administration itself felt that they might not have had the authority to extend this moratorium again without a statute from Congress, but only because, as I understand it, uh, Justice Brett, uh, I like beer, Kavanaugh, had said in an earlier decision uh, and I don't know, was that also the shadow docket, that, that it was up to Congress, not the administration, to decide on such things? Yes, that was another shadow docket decision. So this is all being done from the shadows with no conversation, no debate, no public hearings, just Brett Kavanaugh saying, nope, no eviction moratoriums uh, unless Congress mandates it for some reason. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And, you know, again, we're being deprived of any kind of clear debate about any of this Mm -hmm. stuff. So it's very hard to figure out why the justices are doing Mm -hmm. what they're doing. But back in June, Brett Kavanaugh said Congress has to do this, not the president, not the CDC. Uh, The president did it anyway. uh, And now the case came back to the Supreme Court. And this time, six conservative justices wrote an opinion. At least they gave us an opinion, even though it was very short and unsigned. Uh, claiming that basically federal law does not give the president power to extend an eviction moratorium or to impose one in the first place, that this is illegal and that it has to get approval from Congress. 
uh, in order to be renewed. Uh, something that, uh, you know, just to, just to be clear, is debatable in my view. Mm-hmm. What's important to note here is that it's not really a question about whether the court is right or wrong. It's a question or should be a question of whether the eviction moratorium is so indisputably and clearly illegal mm-hmm. that no reasonable person could possibly think um, that it comports with the law. You know, when cases come to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket, the question is not an up or down vote. The question is not, okay, let's resolve this on the merits. The question is, did the lower courts get it so catastrophically and obviously wrong that the Supreme Court has to intervene on an emergency basis mm-hmm. to reverse it? And I just don't think that's the case here. And, and I think the Supreme Court, the conservatives especially, are awarding themselves more and more power to pretend like uh, debatable decisions in the lower courts are so obviously wrong that they can intervene and resolve them whenever they want. And essentially what they seem to be saying here is that uh, the irreparable harm to be suffered by landlords is far, far worse than the irreparable harm that will be suffered by families kicked out by the millions all over the country. Um, you know, because they're going to uh, block that uh, moratorium rather than, you know, hearing it properly down the road. OK, then there's what is obvious. Well, seemingly it's it's hard to to rate these, but seemingly the most egregious shadow docket decision uh, to allow the Texas anti-abortion law, which even Chief Justice John Roberts in dissenting along with the court's liberals here, uh, suggest could very well be in violation of Roe v. Wade and at the very least should be heard before it is allowed to go into effect. Do I understand correctly that that law has yet to even be heard by an appellate court as well? Yes, and I think it's worth walking through what happened here because mm-hmm. it's so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, what was happening was a, a, a district court judge who was appointed by Obama, was poised to hold a hearing on this law. He was going to hold a hearing. He was going to uh, uh, decide whether he should block it before it takes effect. Mm -hmm. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which has been infused with totally psychopathic Trump judges, Mm -hmm. uh, not only stepped in here, but actually refused to let this judge hold any hearings or do anything. Right on the eve of the law taking effect, the Fifth Circuit just paused the case and, in in effect, ensured that the law would take effect without a judge rendering a decision on its constitutionality one way or the other. Uh, In doing so, ensuring that Texas would be banning abortions after six weeks on September 1st. Uh, This case went up to the Supreme Court, and as you said, by a five to four vote, uh, the conservative justices let the law take effect, claimed that they were just too confused and flummoxed by the procedural issues in the case, uh, and that <laughs> they were not going to enforce so, Roe v. Wade because it was too confusing to do so. So it was, it was too confusing, so they let it all move forward, rather than saying, wait a minute, this is very confusing, we're not sure what happened here, let's put the brakes on this. I mean, w- you know, what, if any, justification was there you know, for not putting that law on hold, given the very clear, I mean, we talk about irreparable harm, you know, obviously the the clear irreparable harm that will, that, that this law will cause to so many women and families in the great state of Texas, that couldn't be more clearer. You know, you, you can't, 
you know, decide this later, six months, a year down the road uh, for these for these women who now have to get an abortion in the first six weeks. I mean, is there any justification other than, oh, it's so so confusing. We're on vacation. Just let it go through for now. We'll figure it out later. That's the only justification that the conservatives gave us. It's literally a single paragraph that is effectively ending Roe versus Wade, right? Because, you know, Roe says that people have a right to get an abortion before viability. That right no longer exists in Texas. I I just don't think you can accurately say that Roe is still good law in Texas. Um, And so here, you know, I think that we were owed at least a real substantive explanation of why these five justices thought Texas could make an end run around Roe, but we didn't get it. All we got was a shruggy emoji saying, this is too much for us, we got to get back to the beach. And, and uh, what, what do you make of the fact that John Roberts even uh, joined the liberals here in dissenting? Should we take anything from that? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, we can say if, if Amy Coney Barrett had not replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then Roe would still be good law and abortion would still be legal in Texas. Uh, I think we can also say that Roberts has some principles here that the other conservative justices don't. Um, you know, the way this law is structured, it's designed to evade judicial review. It's designed to prevent courts from stepping in. Uh, and, and blocking it or striking it down. And I think Roberts, alone among the conservatives, understands how this extremely cynical and kind of unscrupulous method of lawmaking could be used uh, to get around conservative decisions as well. And so he, again, alone among the conservatives, was willing to say, let's tap the brakes on this while we figure out if a state can, can make an end run around the Constitution. Be- because one of the things at issue here is whether an anti-abortion law uh, like the one in Texas, does not violate Roe v. Wade simply because you've got citizens who enforce it themselves with lawsuits, and they, which they can win 10000 bucks or more uh, by suing those who help a woman to get an abortion, including you know friends and family members, clergy members, apparently even Uber drivers. Uh, is, is that the actual question that would be debated and determined through a proper court proceeding, not in the shadows? whether, in fact, uh, the scheme designed to get around Roe v. Wade actually does get around Roe v. Wade? Is that one of the things that we're missing by this being decided in the, in the shadows? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's a huge question, and it's one that I think deserves a full airing, especially after nearly 50 years of Americans enjoying a constitutional right to reproductive autonomy. Um, it's the kind of thing that would be debated in public, uh, if this were, you know, a mm-hmm. regular case. And also, it's the kind of thing that needs weeks or months to really suss out. And traditionally in the law, there's a really strong bias toward the status quo. This is something that Roberts gets at in his opinion. Yeah. Um, there's a bias toward keeping, keeping things as they have been until a court can, can have a full and fair hearing on the, on the merits. Mm-hmm. We didn't get that hearing here, and yet the court still uh, refused to step in and maintain the status quo of abortion access. And so we are left with the nation's second largest state uh, shuttering most of its abortion providers and forcing women to flee out of state if they want to terminate a pregnancy. You know, I don't use the word terrifying very often uh, to to describe what's going on here, but some of this stuff, 
it really is terrifying. I mean, it is so out of the norm. It would be horrible enough. You know, they had a Miss- Mississippi case coming up that may overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, but the fact that, which is, and I think you and I talked a little bit about it last time you were on, that is already disturbing enough. But the fact that this is being done the way it's being done in the middle of the night, you know, I want to ask you about the shadow dot, what can be done about it. But very quickly, one more uh, thought here on the uh, the Texas law. You know, as I was reading up on this decision, I saw that according to the Supreme Court's declaration in in, uh, K- in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey some years ago, that an abortion restriction violates the Constitution if it imposes a, quote, undue burden on a, quote, large fraction of women. Now, we don't know how many women will be affected by the new law in Texas, but about 80 to 95 percent of abortions don't take place until after the first six weeks of pregnancy. But in any event, didn't the high court used to adjudicate, uh, adjudicate rights based on if even one person was blocked from enjoying that right, you know, by any given law, short of a compelling governmental interest. And I'm, I'm asking this because we, this seems to be the same logic that Justice Alito used ruling on the uh, Voting Rights Act in Arizona and the Brnovich case we talked with you about a few weeks ago, a few months ago now, um, that, you know, well, yeah, it does racially discriminate against some people, but not that many people. So it's OK. What is going on here? Is this a new thing or has it always been a based on how many have their constitutional and, and legal rights abridged? So I think that the large fraction language in Casey was unfortunate and not particularly well thought out at the time. You know, that was a rushed opinion, right? There was a flip behind the scenes and they had to get it out really quickly. And that language took on a, a kind of life of its own that I don't think any of the, of the justices anticipated at the time. It has been manipulated by conservative judges and Republican lawmakers and attorneys um, to argue that an abortion restriction is constitutional, even if it imposes really, really severe burdens on abortion, because theoretically, a lot of women could somehow get around those burdens. And so a large fraction of women uh, are not affected. You don't see that language uh, nearly as much in, mm-hmm. for instance, uh, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstadt, which mm-hmm. was sort of the high watermark of modern abortion rights in 2016. Um, and I think that the conservative justices are going to exploit it in Dobbs and maybe even sooner um, to try to uphold some of these abortion restrictions, saying that you can always go out of state or we don't know exactly how many women will be affected. All of that said, the Texas law obviously affects a large fraction of women. I mean, very few people actually know they're pregnant at six weeks. Um, And so that will not be, I think, an escape hatch for this case for conservatives to say, well, it doesn't affect that many people. This affects millions of women of reproductive age. And to pretend otherwise is to, as Sotomayor put it, bury your head in the sand. So all of these, all of these rather momentous decisions uh, and issues over the past two weeks, uh, and it should be noted here, the court blocked actions taken by the Democratic president, but couldn't come up with a reason to block a clearly anti-constitutional law by a Republican legislature in Texas. That one, oh, we'll get to that later. Let that one go through. 
Uh, this all came during the so-called shadow docket. Now, there have always been these decisions made by the high court when they are not in session or when a decision needs to be made quickly, uh, you know, before a law can take effect one way or another, um, while it's, you know, still being hashed out in the lower courts. Why is what we are seeing now different from what has happened before in this regard, Mark? Because we've never, ever seen the Supreme Court intervene as aggressively in ongoing lower court proceedings as it does these days. Um, and this is something that we can trace back directly to Brett Kavanaugh replacing Anthony Kennedy and Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Both of those swaps uh, directly impacted the shadow docket and increased the court's use of the shadow docket. Uh, we see after those swaps, we see the conservative justices suddenly throwing their weight around to block lower court decisions they don't like or refusing to block really flagrantly unconstitutional laws like Texas's abortion ban. Mm -hmm. um, for many decades, for centuries, in fact, the Supreme Court was the court of last review that waited for the lower courts to hold their hearings and make their determinations and then pass judgments after a long while with, you know, a clear written opinion with an assigned author. What we're seeing now are the justices leaping in at the very early stages with barely any briefing, you know, fly-by-night briefing, no oral arguments, mm -hmm. uh, and just rendering a verdict at the outset. Uh, for instance, you know, if we talk about Trump's immigration policies, mm -hmm. the court over and over again stepped in and said, you're not allowed to block these policies, lower court judges. We're the final arbiters, and we're just going to intervene immediately. Mm -hmm. um, in years past, they would have waited for months or maybe even a year to hear the case. And during Trump's presidency, they waited a day and then leapt in. That is, I think, dangerous for the development of the law, and I think it's dangerous for the rule of law because it creates immense instability and really kind of disrupts our federal judiciary in a way that is difficult to stop now that it's begun. And you warned back in uh, February of this year, I think it was, that between 2017 and 2020, the number of divided shadow docket decisions increased roughly tenfold. Uh, Senator, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler, uh, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, um, said that the Supreme Court's unsigned ruling has prompted him now to hold more hearings on the uh, court's use of the shadow docket. He said because the court has now shown repressive state legislatures how to game the system, the House Judiciary Committee will hold hearings to shine a light on the Supreme Court's dangerous and cowardly use of the shadow docket. He said in a statement, is he suggesting, Mark Joseph Stern, that the Texas law was crafted in a way to specifically be decided during the shadow docket? In other words, when the, when they knew that uh, the Supreme Court would be between terms, is is there reason to believe that, you know, Texas or any other state might be declaring, you know, start dates for laws based on the fact that they know the Supreme Court won't be around uh, that time of year? I can't say that for sure, but um, Texas passed this law along with several other laws and set them all to take effect on September 1st. Um, you know, I think if they wanted to allow for a full and fair review of the merits in the lower courts and even at the Supreme Court, they would have given it many more months to take effect, maybe even years. You know, mm -hmm. it's actually really common 
for state legislatures to pass laws with a super delayed start date. Um, this one had a very aggressive start date. Basically, the law was passed at the beginning of the summer, and it took effect toward the end of the summer. That was it. Uh, and yet, even then, we had these Texas Republicans defending the law, saying that you know abortion providers just dragged their feet waiting to challenge it. That's nonsense. Mm. This law was on the rocket docket from the moment it was introduced. Um, so I don't know if the, these Republicans were gaming the system actively, but certainly the stars aligned for them, and it all worked out in their favor. Well, and you add that the uh, s- the Supreme Court, the far right Supreme Court, uh, f- I'm sorry, Supreme Court, uh, Fifth Circuit Court down in Texas. Uh, you call them conservative, I call them far right, uh, that they actually jumped into this thing and prevented uh, an appellate court judge from hearing the case. Uh, do, do we know why they did that? And could their uh, move there have been part of pushing this through somehow while they knew the Supreme Court was 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 not going to be in session to do anything about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the Fifth Circuit was acting in extreme bad faith here. I think it is very clear what the Fifth Circuit was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, the Fifth Circuit knew that this law was about to take effect. The Fifth Circuit knew that this Obama-appointed judge was probably about to block it. And so the Fifth Circuit lapped in uh, at the last minute and suspended all hearings and proceedings, knowing that the Supreme Court probably had its mm-hmm. back. Um, the, the lower courts are increasingly emboldened to yeah. essentially reverse precedent on their own um, because they know that there are five ultra-far-right conservative justices, Republican justices, really, yeah. on the Supreme Court who will have their back. And so, yes, I think that that definitely played into the Fifth Circuit's exceedingly cynical and kind of exploitative calculations in this case. Lastly, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, or maybe second to lastly, I, I believe there will be, uh, as I mentioned, uh, more hearings uh, soon in Congress on the shadow docket. It's unclear to me, however, if there's actually, is there a legislative solution for this problem, even, you know, if you could somehow, you know, get Republicans to come along and uh, play along in, in, in legislating such a solution, what would the solution be? Yeah, so there's actually a lot of solutions here, um, and most of them are pretty obviously constitutional. Um, so the, the Constitution gives Congress really broad latitude to set rules for the Supreme Court. Um, so one thing Congress could do is, for instance, say, you are not allowed to issue an unreasoned order blocking some policy or allowing some unconstitutional law to take effect without explanation. This exact provision is in the House Democrats' latest voting rights bill. The John Lewis Voting Mm -hmm. Rights Bill, which has passed the House, Mm -hmm. bars the Supreme Court from issuing uh, unreasoned one-line orders Mm. uh, restricting voting rights through the shadow docket. This is something that Congress could do for all manner of laws. Mm. Uh, Congress could also strip the Supreme Court of jurisdiction over these cases when they're in the early stages, when they're still making their way up the pipeline. Uh Um, This is something the Constitution expressly envisions Congress doing. It gives Congress the power to take away jurisdiction from the Supreme Court in really any cases that it wants. And so Congress could step in and rewrite the Supreme Court's own rules, rewrite the Supreme Court's own power and authority, and say, you don't get to snatch up these cases so early on, and you don't get to deal with them in the shadows the way that you've been doing. Oh, brother. Uh, uh, Finally, finally, does any of this, Mark, uh, somehow broaden support for expanding the court in order to unpack it? 
to stop this nonsense in order to you know reverse the uh, six to three stolen majority somehow. I mean, it seems like they're making a lot of plays here, a lot of moves. This court, they don't seem too concerned, uh, you know, about reform coming to the court the way they're acting here. But uh, does it somehow make that more possible? So you know, here's the thing: <laughs> I'm not a political reporter. I tend to be very pessimistic about court reform because mm-hmm. Democrats don't seem to understand how dangerous the Supreme Court is. You know, they don't, they don't seem to grasp the threat to democracy and individual rights that this court poses. Democrats have a higher approval rating of John Roberts than Republicans do. Um, <laughs> and so I guess I would say it is our job, those of us in the media, those of us who pay attention to these issues, to make the American people understand what's happening. This stuff is complicated. You and I are sitting here talking about jurisdiction. Yeah. Most Americans probably don't really know what that means. We need to be able to explain this stuff without legalese, explain it clearly and coherently, so Americans understand why this is a big problem and why they need to urge their, their representatives to step up and solve it. It is a solvable problem, but as long as most Americans just revere the Supreme Court as some kind of hazy body of gods on Mount Olympus mm. that hands down the holy writ, we're not going to make any kind of progress. Mark Joseph Stern uh, covers the law, the court system, the Supreme Court, and election law, much more at Slate.com. Mark, I, I didn't expect it. Last time we, we talked, we said, oh, we'll gather in the fall. It will be bad news talking about the new uh, abortion case. Uh, I guess we got an early jump on it here, but in some sense it feels like kind of an appetizer for what is yet to come from the ter- from this court once they really do get back uh, in business on the first Monday in October. And I will be uh, calling you with my hair on fire at that point, no doubt. Uh, hey, always great speaking with you, my friend. You can check out, you, you must check out Mark's work, which, by the way, is written for regular people. You don't have to be a wonk to understand it. Uh, over at Slate.com and follow him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark, Always, quote-unquote, great speaking with you, my friend. Always a pleasure. Sorry, the news is usually really bad when you pick up the phone to call me. (laughs) I'm sure it'll get better soon. Thanks, Mark. I'm sure everything will be fine. (laughs) Nothing to worry about. Uh, Okay, uh, my thanks to all of you, by the way, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them all for free anytime you like at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by uh, those of you who are generous enough to uh, keep me and Desi on your public airwaves, to keep Nicole coming in and filling in for us when she can while we're off. Uh, at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. Hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 